1: This episode of the Self Love Club podcast is brought to you by Designer Wardrobe. Try Designer Wardrobe Rental with thousands of amazing outfits to choose from, from just $39 to rent. The Self Love Club, where boss women share their stories to empower others. Welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. I'm your host, Belle Crawford. Hello, hello. Welcome to a new episode of the Self Love Club. Thank you so much for joining me. And if you are new, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us. There is a backlog of interviews with some incredible women for you to catch up on. We rely heavily on your support and there are some easy ways you can do that. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Self Love Club on whatever podcast app you like listening on. We're on all of them. Also, you can follow us at Self Love Club Podcast on Instagram. You get daily self care, self love notes, IGTV, clips of interviews, inside scoops, heaps of goodness. And it's really cool to see where you're listening. Keep tagging us in your stories. Another way, if you're really enjoying it, is telling a friend about it. Sharing with your pals is super helpful. And we do thank you for all of your support. Right, let's get into this week's episode. Jessie Guru is a super talented and kind-hearted woman who uses her platform to speak up for those who are struggling and may not have a voice. In this episode, we discuss Jessie's experience of living with endometriosis, clinical depression, growing up mixed race and hiding her identity in order to survive and thrive, as well as launching a business during a pandemic. A warning, this episode does mention suicide, not in graphic detail, but it may be triggering and I've put a list of places you can get help in the show notes. We're so lucky to have Jesse on the Self Love Club podcast. GC, welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. So appreciate you coming
0: on. Oh my gosh, it's so good to be here. I'm actually really excited about this.
1: Yay! So tell us a bit about yourself. I'm excited too. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you do.
0: I have had a real mishmash career over the years. I've been a caregiver, a bartender, a flight attendant. I've done reality TV, I've done journalism. I ran a production company that made music videos. I've been a singer. And then I moved to Japan and I legally couldn't work over there and for fun and as a creative outlet and just to kind of deal with the loneliness. I created my Instagram account just to basically talk about things that I was passionate about like wellness and cooking and and then I started to share a bit about about my depression and my endometriosis and then I kind of started to connect with this online community and not feel so lonely and then my Instagram kind of just accidentally grew from there and then I went into social media stuff.
1: Yeah. We'll go through all of that soon, but take us back. Where did you grow up and did you have any idea when you were younger what you wanted to do at all?
0: I was born in Auckland in Papato'i and um, when I was three months old, my mum, dad and I actually moved to Malaysia to this little island called Penang Island, uh, which is my dad's hometown. And I lived there until I was almost 12 and then I moved to New Zealand for the first time. In 1995, that's really showing my age. No. (laughs) It was like, I was super fresh off the boat. Like, I was a very sheltered kid because I went to an international school in Malaysia. And so everybody was from everywhere. So it was normal to be different, if that makes sense. Mm. So there was an extreme kind of, like, culture shock shifting to New Zealand me and my brother were like the weird kids at school that wore like all these hand-me-down winter clothes in the middle of summer because we were just like so freezing and that wasn't a great start and then add the accents and um, just the awkwardness and the way that we were raised and then going kind of stepping into a public school, you know, like I remember on my first day, I put my hand up and was like, may I be excused to the lavatory with this weird accent? And I think I just like from then on, I had like a target on my back. Mm. Yeah. It wasn't a fun time, but, um, I wouldn't change a thing. Like it definitely shaped me for the better.
1: Mm. Yeah. And did you know what you wanted to do? Like, did you have any ideas of what you wanted to do for work or a career?
0: It's so funny when I was a young kid, I wanted to be either a vet or a beauty queen because I remember I used to watch the Miss World pageant and it was when Miss India had won and I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like a woman like with Indian features, like being crowned the most beautiful woman in the world. When I moved to New Zealand things started to change, like I became very like shy and awkward and I had a back injury when I started high school and I was in a back brace <laughs> and like not one of those subtle ones, like a proper metal plate that went all the way down my spine with like this harness corset and my mom, because I was very sporty and suddenly like my hobbies and my whole identity as like a young kid was sort of taken away and my mum enrolled me in drama classes and from there I kind of developed this Like, newfound passion for drama and singing and things like that. And that's when I sort of wanted to go down the path of, like, entertainment. So it was kind of accidental. I never really thought about it until that that happened. Mm. Yeah.
1: And so what did you do when you left school?
0: When I left school, I went into flight attending and then I went on a show called Miss Popularity and ended up winning, which was... So not what I was expecting. And then that kind of took me down the path of television.
1: So, yes, yeah, so you've done a lot of different things. And what do you think you're most passionate about doing?
0: I am really passionate about the beauty space, but clean and cruelty-free beauty and diverse beauty. So like really trying to create a space that has more inclusiveness and representation And normalizing diversity too, so that it's not tokenized, but where it becomes very normal to see all types of multifaceted beauty represented. Mm. That's kind of my passion at the moment. And just like empowering young women, especially to kind of find their voices, but also be a lot more in touch and in tune with their bodies. With my background of endometriosis and the struggles that I've had, like I wish that I learned a lot more about being in tune with my cycle and all those things that you don't get taught, you know, at school. Mm. Um, Those are the kind of areas I am mostly passionate about now.
1: Yeah. Talk us through your struggles with endometriosis. When did that all start for you? And, you know, that's been a rough ride for you.
0: I didn't know it at the time, but basically from the first time I got my period, it wasn't normal. I got my period at 13 and I remember kind of like, looking at my girlfriend's experiences with theirs and how, how freely they could move and go about their everyday lives and there was no restrictions. But for me, I was like crippled with pain and would really bleed really heavily and almost be bedridden for a few days. It took, I think I was 18 when I finally got diagnosed and it was because there were so many doctors that we would go and see that would tell me and my mom, like, this is just part of being a woman, periods. And I just needed to harden up. And so it wasn't until my mom was reading, like, I think she was reading, like, Next Magazine or something. And there was this article in it. Do you remember the band Golden Horse? Mm. Might be before your time. <laughs> um, you no, know, I Yeah. And there was an article in, a, in this magazine about her and her journey with endometriosis, and my mum read it, and all the symptoms she was describing, mum had this like moment where she was like, oh my God, that's Jessie. That's my daughter. That's when we went to a specialist and got, you know, I mean, you have to have a laparoscopy surgery to be properly diagnosed. They can't really tell from the outset. And that's when, yeah, my journey with endometriosis sort of began where I knew what it was called and it was a thing. But it was years and years um, much later that I kind of really fully accepted and understood and accepted the gravity of what this thing is and how it affects my everyday life. Mm. Um, It took me a long time to realize that I couldn't do And be the way my peers could be, you know, like they could go out drinking and have a decent bender and then wake up and kind of recover quite quickly, whereas my body wouldn't let me. And there were a lot more like restrictions and limitations and stuff Mm. on my body.
1: What are some other things that ways that it affects you that those who may not have it may not know about? I mean, obviously painful periods, but... You know, a lot of surgery yeah. in and out of hospital, like you say, just things that normally people take for granted. You just can't do.
0: Chronic fatigue and endometriosis seem to go hand in hand for a lot of people. I've had both, so chronic fatigue is something. Um, just yeah, you know, the constant tiredness, brain fog can be another thing where you kind of can be quite forgetful or lots of dietary restrictions, um, bloating. The pain can happen sporadically anytime throughout your period as well. Um, throughout your monthly cycle. So sometimes I could be driving and then have to pull over on the side of the road because the pain kind of is so Mm. intense. Fainting, I've fainted a lot and and sometimes very inconvenient places like knocking your head on a toilet or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many symptoms. And then with those things, often the loneliness and feeling misunderstood and it being such an invisible disease can mean that it leads to depression. And I think that mine was connected to that like from quite a young age. Mm. But yeah, the, definitely the loneliness and the fact that it is so invisible, I think connects it with like a lot of shame for a lot of young girls. What do you yeah. think the shame's linked with Honestly, I think for myself, and I still have to work on this, it's human nature to compare yourself to others around you. And so as a woman, as a young woman, when you're just kind of going through puberty and coming you know, to terms with the fact that your body's changing and developing and you're stepping into this new space, from the outset, when your body's not functioning like everybody else's, there's a deep sense of failure. Mm. And it's definitely something that I've, I still have to work on because of, you know, like the more surgeries you've had, and I've had four, they say that that can increase your infertility, because of the scarring and things like that. So then you kind of go into this sort of headspace of like feeling faulty as a woman, you know, and then you go into the fertility side of things. And um, I've been with my partner for nine years this month. That is something people are well-meaning, but they'll say like, oh, did you know, like, if you have a child, that'll cure endometriosis, which is totally not true. Mm. It just means that you are not you're, you don't obviously have your periods while you're pregnant, and then while you're breastfeeding, for a lot of women, they won't have their periods come back for a long time. So, of course, you're, you're going to be symptom-free. You know, a lot of those things aren't going to be around, so that's a complete myth. But it's well-meaning, but it's insensitive at the same time, and that fertility thing hangs over a lot of women that have endometriosis and PCOS. It's mm-hmm. something that is like a, a much louder ticking noise and. Most women, yeah. Yeah,
1: and I guess, yeah, like you say, you're in constant pain. There's a lot of complications. And, yeah, like you can't really ask them on those questions because they may be struggling with it or they may not want to. But with endometriosis, mm-hmm. it sounds like there can be times where you, people aren't sure if they're able to have children. And and for anyone, that's, the you know, yeah. be the case, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, it, it, yeah, I th- I definitely think the shame is attached to the loneliness thing. You know, a lot of people have heard about it, but they might not know how deeply it affects women. Um, it's isolating. I have lost lots of friendships and relationships over it. It really can have a huge impact on every area of your life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I guess that must be linked in. Like you said, you think that's linked in with your depression and you have been quite open with that. Mm. Talk us through that. And I know that's debilitating for you at times.
0: Yes. So I have been diagnosed with MDD, or clinical depression, so it's a chemical imbalance in my brain. For a long time, I wasn't diagnosed, and I think I tried to self-manage things, thinking that um, because I'm you know able to be emotionally articulate and i'm I am a a person that loves to kind of be very open and talk about my feelings. And I sort of took pride in the fact that I wasn't afraid of internalizing things. I was very good at verbalising how I was feeling to a certain point. And there was this sense of like, I should be able to fix this myself. I should be able to snap out of it. And for years, I would try to do that, not knowing the history in my mum's side of the family, because my mum hadn't got to a place within herself to feel like she could have those heavy conversations with me. I wish she did earlier, but everyone's doing their best, right? Like you just, the older I get, the more I realize like, oh my gosh, my mom had me when she was 28 and how little I knew at 28. (laughs) Um, But I, I do wish that I had known that in my mom's side of the family, there is a history of mental illness that would have made me feel less alone and like there was something terribly wrong with me that nobody else seemed to have. And it wasn't until I was 24 that this whole sort of front that I would put up where I was very good at pretending that I was always happy and I was the one that people would come to to talk about, you know, about their problems. I think it was in hindsight a coping mechanism where because my body was failing me so much and then my mental health was failing I love to be able to fix other people or help them with their things because it validated me. It made me feel like I was useful. Mm. When you're like that and you're not filling your cup and you're not reaching out and asking people for help, um, you burn out. And I definitely did. And I overdosed. I, um, yeah, attempted suicide. I was in a bath. I took a whole bunch of pills and my partner at the time found me in the bath put me in an ambulance and I had to get my stomach pumped and it was when I was released from hospital that my mum and dad flew up from Wellington to be with me and my dad was with me and he my dad never cries but he started crying and he said to me what would I have told your brothers because I'm the eldest I've got two younger brothers and when he said that to me it kind of hit me in a and sort of like I woke up out of this like fog of understanding the impact of what you leave behind you know the destruction that you leave behind when you when you make that decision you're not thinking clearly at the time when you do something like that until you are in that vulnerable space where you are absolute rock bottom you actually don't understand that it's honestly feels like the least selfish thing to do and it's the best option for everybody because you are so miserable You feel like you are bringing everybody down with you. You're like this energy vacuum, you know, like you're so sorrowful and and unhappy and just don't see a way out of it that you're like, oh my God, I don't want to make the people that I love feel exhausted and depleted because of this vortex. When I came out the other side and I heard dad say that and I saw the pain in his face, it just kind of snapped me out of like... Yeah, realising the aftermath. It might seem like it makes sense in those moments when you are super vulnerable and low. I, I suddenly understood that I was robbing everybody of the right to, to completely see me at my most vulnerable and let them decide if they have the tools to be there for me. Mm. You know, not everybody does and everyone's got their own stuff going on, at whatever, you know, especially at the moment. But everyone that loves you deserves an opportunity to be there for you. And my decision at that time, I was taking that away from everyone. Mm. You know, I wasn't giving them the benefit of the doubt. I wasn't giving them the, the chance to see me and hear me fully. And so ever since then, that always, like I have been suicidal since then, but it's that thing that it always takes me back to that and, and like, no, Jesse, like there's another way, there's another option. And um, my accountability and my openness stems from that so I I do get some trolls telling me like shut up nobody needs to hear about this like you're always feeling sorry for yourself like you're always talking about such depressing shit but it's not for them it's for the people that were like me who feel too frightened to be that vulnerable with the people around them for fear of judgment or like, or like their are a failure or whatever it is, push past that. It's not worth it to be that lonely. Yeah. How do,
1: how do you bring yourself back from that place? And you say, you know, you're still better with this and there's still times where you have those thoughts. Like, how do you bring yourself back? And, you know, you use that moment from your dad, but how do you get through that?
0: Honestly, sometimes it can go for days, weeks and, and a little while ago, I was deeply depressed this year um, for like probably about six weeks. And oh, it's so exhausting. Like even having a shower feels like a massive, a massive monumental like mountain climb where you're like, oh, I just don't even want to get out of bed. I I know when my depression starts to seep in because that self care starts to really drop. You know, that pride and and taking care of myself and the basic, basic things that that you do every day just slip. There's some things that I've had to put in place, like my coping mechanism is I retreat and I shut everybody off. Like I completely cut everyone out, I don't respond to people. I shut my family out. And they know, like they notice, but it's an incredibly destructive behaviour because those that don't know me well enough, it's a hurtful way of dealing with things. And I've definitely lost friendships and, and work opportunities because of it, because I've got to that place and I've lived there for too long. Therapy, tools, medication, those are the really, like the real basic things that I've I've known that I've had to put in place. Therapy's fucking expensive. Mm. Um, And I wish that it wasn't. I wish it was more accessible in this country. It's super frustrating that it's not. Sometimes it's as simple as like picking up the phone or sometimes I don't feel like even talking on the phone. Sometimes it's just sending a group message out to my family and a few of my closest, nearest and dearest friends and saying, this is where I'm at right now. Please don't take it personally. I don't feel like hanging out. I'm wallowing right now. Um, but please don't give up on me. Check in with me in a couple of days or something. Sometimes it really is as little as like making my bed. That habit of of doing something visual and decluttering a space or making myself a meal. Uh, going outside for some fresh air and like some sunshine can be amazing. It's a constant battle um, and it's definitely a daily decision. Because it's a choice. I think it's forever going to be a work in progress with me. I've come to terms with the fact that this is, you know, I have MDD and this might be always with me. And it's breaking past that shame. I'm unapologetic about it now. Like, I am what I am. I can't help it. It's not my fault that I'm like this. But I also know that I need to be accountable and not be a victim about it. You know, it's a fine balance Mm. between the two things. I definitely have days where I'm crying and my partner's amazing for someone that's not that's never experienced um, any problems with mental health, and that comes from a background where he went to boarding school from the age of eleven to an all boys school, so it's not like he's been super emotionally and <laughs> sharing with stuff. And then he met me with my endometriosis and <laughs> um, clinical <laughs> depression, so he kind of had a crash course. But you know, nine years deep, and he's still with me, and he's been incredibly supportive but it took a long time for him to understand that his instinct to want to fix me is in vain and he actually just needs to love me through it and sometimes that's not easy <laughs> but just kind of telling me that he's there um and that he loves me is sometimes all I need and it's the same with my family and and a few of my closest friends but I've definitely lost friendships and relationships over my depression because of my depression for mm-hmm. sure
1: yeah, I think, mm. do you think sometimes people just don't know how to help you? And because especially guys like to know how to fix things. Guys are fixers. They're like, yeah. they want to know how to fix a problem and your friends. I think some people just aren't able to understand and maybe just don't know how to help. And then especially if you're retreating, then they're just like, well, what are we supposed to do? It's such a tough one.
0: Oh, gosh, yes. And I mean, some friendships have been rekindled and repaired. I've had to do damage control and just really humble myself and go to them and just completely own it. Own my shit, own my like failings, my shortcomings and say, I was a shit friend. I'm so sorry. This is actually what was going on at the time. Mm. Same with work, work situations too, you know, like, Hey, I'm, I really let you down big time on this and I'm so sorry. And it's up to them how they want to receive it. Right. But at least for your own peace of mind too. And in terms of your progress with your mental health journey, that ownership is so important and being accountable, not just to yourself, but to others. It's hard because it's, you've got to push past your ego and your pride Mm you know and it's easier sometimes to put your head in the sand and i'm terribly guilty of that like even now like i still catch myself doing it i'm much better than i used to be but it's still it's a thing it's my natural instinct to go to that retreat sort of space But giving people that opportunity to decide for themselves, like some might say apology accepted, but hey, like, I think we'll just leave it at that. Others say like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for telling me. I honestly didn't understand. And I thought I'd done something wrong. I was really hurt by it. You've got to be prepared for whatever the consequences are of your actions and however they might react is is up to them. Like... Mm. You have to be prepared for the fact that's not everybody's going to forgive you. But forgiving yourself, part of that process is that ownership and accountability.
1: Does it make uh, relationships, I mean, obviously it makes them tricky, but especially romantic relationships. I mean, you've had a long-term one for quite a long time now, but does it make it really hard, especially, you know, when you're younger and you're dating and it
0: must be tricky, yeah. I think when I look back, my two previous relationships before Adam definitely a huge contributing factor to that would have been my depression hindsight's a beautiful thing so when you look back you start to kind of see it from a place that's your your emotions are removed from it you know the heartbreak is removed and you're thinking a lot more logically and practically and when you look back i see the destructive patterns of behavior that i i demonstrated and when you're young and you don't have the tools and you don't have the diagnoses like it's a lot it is a lot for somebody to love somebody with depression of any kind. It's a lot to love someone with a chronic illness. So when you put those two together, it's a hell of a package deal. (laughs) Um, And it doesn't matter how good of a person you are, how amazing you are on your good days, like the bad days are heavy. It does take a certain kind of person to be able to withstand that and be loyal and navigate that. Yeah. My heart goes out to younger people that, you know, still haven't necessarily been diagnosed or, don't know what's wrong with them or don't have a support system around them to help them navigate that because it is really hard. But that's also why I am really vocal and talk about it. And use my platform to talk about it Because for all the ones that tell me to shut up If I even just get one person That watches a story on a certain day Or sees a swipe up link to some resource That I've shared Like it's so worth it Because I don't have those things Like social media as much as people knock it And I'm one of those people I'm definitely guilty of it Because there's definitely a dark shady side to it (laughs) It is an amazing people connector. Like, it's an amazing resource for for people out there to connect with like-minded individuals, you know, to share common ground, to share resources and to support one another. It's not like high school. Like, it's an amazing thing where you get to be in this big, wide world. It's not about clicks. It's like actually finding your people. We'll get back to the rest of our episode soon, but first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Do you have an event this summer and are looking for the perfect dress or outfit to wear? Try Designer Wardrobe Rental. They have thousands of amazing options to rent from just $39. I use Designer Wardrobe all the time. Outfits that are perfect for weddings, birthdays, hensters, balls, or even a lunch or night out with your friends. By renting, you're not only saving money, you're also saving our planet. Get $10 off your next rental using the code SLC10 online or at Designer Wardrobe's Newmarket, Albany, or Christchurch stores. And tag them and us in your pics of you looking beautiful. Right, let's get back to the rest of our episode. With your clinical depression, are there triggers or does it sort of just come on for you because it is a chemical imbalance?
0: Um, Definitely I've got triggers. One of them is, not many people know this about me, but because I have had such a gypsy life, especially since being with my partner because of the nature of his job as a professional rugby player. Um, For those listening that don't know, my partner used to be in the All Blacks and then he retired and then we went overseas. So we've traveled a lot and him in particular with his career and he gets itchy feet or whatever you call it. He likes to hop around a lot. Like I've got friends that go somewhere when their partners retire from New Zealand professional rugby and they go to a club overseas and they were there for like nine years. We, on the other hand, really moved around. So we went to Japan and then he got bored and then he wanted to go to Australia to play Super Rugby. So we moved to Brisbane for half the year. Then we moved back to Japan. Then we moved to Melbourne for five months. Then we moved back to Japan. Then he was in between contracts and we moved back to New Zealand. Then we moved back to Japan. It was just constant. Yes, the travel is amazing and we've had some incredible, incredible opportunities and adventures and made some amazing friends. And I love traveling, but I love having a nest. I like to have a home base. I'm a homebody at heart. So whenever things are really uncertain and I don't know where we're going to next or what's going to happen, I start to kind of spiral. And in the last three years, especially that's been the case just because my partner developed a really rare spine infection and he was paralysed temporarily. And so we were in this hospital in Japan, in a rural area of Japan, it wasn't Tokyo, um, in a hospital where nobody really spoke English, and it was Christmas, and we were in hospital for two months, and it was just me and him. We had these plans, you know, like this forecast of like three years, we'll do this, we'll save, and then we'll transition out of his retirement, and I could go back to work in New Zealand, and it's going to be great. And then this happened, and everything kind of just got flipped upside down, and from not even knowing if my partner could walk again, to suddenly job security our future plans the way we were going to save everything just got turned upside down and that's been three years of us navigating that and figuring stuff out as we go and that's been really challenging super challenging because there've been so many question marks over us. Where are we going to live? How are we going to make money? Um, what should we do now? <laughs> In that process, I really neglected my own health physically and mentally because I was just so focused on getting Adam back on his feet, literally. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's something that I really struggle with. I, last year when we came back from living in Bali, we lived in Bali for a little while while Adam was still rehabbing, and we just needed a break, and I loved it there, but we suddenly came back to New Zealand, and we were meant to be here for a few weeks, but one thing led to another, and we've ended up being here ever since, but I kind of spiraled into this like really deep depression and had like a a nervous breakdown and quit social media <laughs> and everything, stopped doing all my social media work, and so then I had no income stream, like my independent income stream, Um, and I was living at mum and dad's at the time, and um, my endometriosis flared up again, and had to have a fourth surgery, and it just, it was a lot, hmm. but I'm so glad that I removed social media out of the qu- equation, because I didn't have that sort of feeling of obligation to put my best face forward to pretend like everything was rosy and amazing because it wasn't and I was just really grateful for that for that time of healing I went to therapy I even did this thing called equine therapy which sounds super hippie and woo-woo it's working with horses. It's for people that have had PTSD in particular, which I've been diagnosed with. It's just amazing; like it changed my life. But also being at home mostly because we were in Dunedin for a little while. Because while Adam was starting to play rugby again, he could walk. Hallelujah! <laughs> and now he's playing rugby. Yeah, having this healing time with mum and dad on the Carpathy Coast in my adult years as well. Like having this relationship with them, and then hanging out with my brother and. Ortucky, where they live on the Kapiti coast is really beautiful it's by a river and a beach and there's like lots of hikes that you can do it was just like reconnecting with nature super simple life I needed it I needed that stillness and not having to go anywhere and be anything or anybody to anyone else but just be Jesse. so it
1: was it was really good yeah Yeah. What are some of the ways that you look after yourself, your self-care, whether it be for your mental health, but, you know, what are some of your go-to self-care practices?
0: Self-care, it's such an important thing, and I know there's, like, a lot of buzz around it, and Mm. a lot of people associate just straight up, like, putting a face mask on, and that's your self-care. Self-care is anything that really is soul food for an individual person. So, for me, it's, like, during lockdown, I've Like i always loved gardening, but in lockdown became obsessed with houseplants, (laughs) And I now have this jungle, but this, and I've read articles about it, so it's definitely not just me. But there's something about even on the days when I am super gross and don't haven't showered for a couple of days or even brushed my teeth, and I'm just really feral and deep in that depression, I look at my plants and I'm like, oh my gosh, they need a water, and I start tending to them and I prune them and I mist them with spray, and before I know it, I've spent like 40 minutes doing that. And I've completely switched off. My phone hasn't been in my hand. And I've just been kind of nurturing these things that rely on me to live. And it's this kind of weird indirect thing of like, if you can spend 40 minutes doing these things, Jesse, then you can definitely freaking brush your teeth (laughs) and have a shower. Yeah, You know, like it's a really, yeah, that's been a really therapeutic thing. So I love doing that. I love to cook, preparing a meal for myself with good food, you know, like good, like wholesome, whole food. Um, Being half like Sri Lankan, Indian, Malaysian, I love to make curries from scratch. So that's like roasting the spices and then putting them in a mortar and pestle and like grinding them. And it reminds me of my grandmother when I was little, like, these rituals of like nostalgic things as well like nostalgic smell like it's a sensory thing right self care so it's like the smells and sights and sounds that conjure up good memories and and happy thoughts and stuff I definitely love a good face mask like I've been I'm one of those shameless people that wears sheet masks on an airplane I've been doing that for for about seven years like that was one of the good things about living in Japan was they love a good they do a great sheet mask I love binge watching um, happy type stuff on Netflix. Uh, what did I just watch? I think I did it in the span of a night. Emily in Paris. Yeah, it's
1: good, hey? It's just so nice and easy it to had, watch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And sometimes your brain, like, there's a lot of heavy stuff in the world right now. Like, it's exhausting. Sometimes it's nice to watch something that's light and just visually pretty.
1: Yeah.
0: And, like, there was some, like, bad reviews on that show. I loved it. Mm. It was great, like, relief. But, yeah, so self-care is, is so many different things, and it's whatever you're in the mood for or whatever you're kind of really craving at the time You've
1: talked us through yeah. growing up mixed race And we touched on that briefly But, well, it's like growing up in New Zealand Or anywhere like that must be so hard And I know you've been quite vocal about, like, racism and your experiences But <laughs> but what is that? What is that? That must be so hard Talk us through all that
0: It's been something that I've been a bit of a broken record on for a long time Because I've been in the entertainment industry since I was 21 well over a decade that I've been doing this stuff. When I first came into the scene, there was nobody that looked like me on television and mainstream media. I was it. I became very quickly aware of the fact that there was a different level of responsibility on on people like me from minority ethnic backgrounds, where that visibility is representing more than just myself. It's showing other people like me that we can be included in these very predominantly white spaces. But what happened to me, you know, with internalized racism, when you grow up in a racist society, you don't realize, often subconsciously, you are taking on that energy and as a coping mechanism, you dull a lot of things inside you, you suppress a lot of those things that make moving through life harder for yourself. When I first moved to New Zealand and I experienced that racism, to cope with it, I just basically extinguished anything within me that was remotely related to my brownness. So that meant like my accent. I tried to sound Kiwi as like as quickly as possible. I didn't want mum to put stinky ethnic food in my lunchbox. I didn't want my dad to pick me up from school because I didn't want them to see that my dad was this dark South Indian Malaysian man. I didn't want to celebrate the religious, like ethnic kind of celebrations that I grew up loving. Into my teens and and adulthood, that internalized racism like came with you know when someone would make a racist joke about somebody, and then they'd look at me and go, "Oh, but Jesse, you're different. You're not like that, you know, because you don't sound like you don't talk like them, or you know, you're you're one of us." And I would go along with it. Th- those are all things that I did to survive. Mm. So when I was when I was the only person in that mainstream media space, I was almost sort of grateful to be there, I felt indebted and excited and and grateful to be given a seat at the table, to be even asked to be at the table. Whereas now, looking back at those moments and all the times that I let casual racism slide or blatant prejudice or, you know, those ignorant remarks and situations that I've been, when I would let those slide... I was enabling that behavior to continue that destructive stuff and not making it easier for the next people coming up. I wasn't doing anything about it. I wasn't I wasn't a change maker. I was complacent. I understand that that was my coping mechanism. That was my way of surviving and, and trying to thrive in those spaces. I've had to do a lot of self-reflection and work to start to dismantle that internalized racism and start taking responsibility for some of that stuff because it's not about being grateful to be included at the table to be given a seat. It's about realizing that I deserve to be at the table in the first place. I earned that, right? And I shouldn't be afraid to vocalize and to call it out when I see something that's racist and that's wrong. But it's a very scary and hard thing because it's uncomfortable and a lot of people don't like you to call it out and talk about it and hold them accountable for it. Like, you know, talking about white privilege, it makes a lot of people really defensive. It's a funny thing to be to be mixed race in this space as well. You know, my mum is Kiwi European and my dad is Malaysian and, and in many spaces I'm often made to feel not brown enough to be in the brown spaces and not white enough to be in the white spaces. So I also come into the space kind of like a mediator as well, because there's a lot of anger and hurt and bitterness from a lot of people in the BIPOC community and rightly so. But then there's a lot of people in the the white space that feel wrongly accused of things that people did before them. And so when anger is met with defensiveness, it's like there's no progress that ever gets made. It's like everybody's talking at the same time and it's a lot of noise and nobody's listening to each other. I've tried really hard to explain things in a way that makes people feel safe enough to have the conversations. You know, it's not about pointing fingers. Sometimes it is because sometimes the fingers really do need to be pointed if someone's in a position where they have a public profile and a sense of social responsibility to to be responsible and accountable for destructive behaviour. I I see a lot of misdirected anger at people and a lot of policing and things that I think creating more division Mm. than unity And that's a struggle for me, like, when I do certain things, I'm not an authority for every BIPOC person or every brown person. I also know that being a light-skinned brown person means that I come with with a set of privileges that a lot of my friends that are darker don't have in, you know, in terms of colorism in the brown communities. It's a real thing. Mm. So I've had to come to terms with the fact that even though my experiences haven't been ones where I've had privilege because of the colour of my skin, because I've grown up in New Zealand, I've almost always been the brownest person in a white room. But I understand when some people say to me, like, if you were in India or if you were back in Malaysia, you would have those privileges, Jesse, in that classist system based around the colour of my skin. I'm fair-skinned brown. So layered. Like, it feels like you're constantly walking on eggshells and glass and you just have to kind of do your best. I do know that I will never stop learning about racism and discrimination and um, how layered it is and how it's not. there's not one right story or wrong story. You know, like everybody's experiences are different. But I definitely know that I have a responsibility as a person of colour. As much as I'm light skin brown, I don't get to hang my brown skin in the closet. Every Like, you know, I don't get to go, should I wear my brown skin or my white skin today? What am I going to do today? I'm going for a job interview at this place. So, oh. I better put my brownness to the side and just be like identify with my whiteness today. Because white passing people get to do that, you know, as, as much as someone might be Maori or part Samoan or Indian or whatever, if they are white passing, there is another set of privilege that comes with that too, where people don't necessarily identify you as being a person of color. And, you know, they'll make jokes with you like, oh, those those maoris over there like always on the benefit or whatever like they make jokes thinking that you're not one of them mm. and i experience it sometimes like i had a neighbor say oh indians are taking over everywhere didn't know that i was indian i <laughs> just kind of looking at him and i was like do i have the energy right now to deal with this and i was like no i actually don't today and sometimes sometimes you have to put your own mental health first mm. That's something I've really learned like when the mosque attack happened last year, that triggered so much unresolved racial trauma in me that I think that's what sort of spiraled and led me to have that nervous breakdown and remove myself from social media because as much as it brought us together, I also saw a lot of ugly redneck underbelly that surfaced mm. and it was so gross um, and it scared me and it upset me and I was exhausted having arguments with people that were so frightened to embrace something that was different from them. I've, I've really realised in the work that I did last year in the therapy and the self-reflection and stuff that this fight is everybody's, there also has to be space, you know, where I give myself permission to step away from it sometimes and and heal. Because an angry person, when I come from a place of anger, like it's so incredibly destructive and harmful and not at all conducive to the outcome that I want that's in my heart for everybody.
1: And I guess your experiences and your passion to show that inclusivity in the beauty industry is you've started a business well done it's so exciting
0: <laughs> yeah working in in that social media space and being a, an influencer a person of color in the influencer space in New Zealand there's we're a bit like unicorns there's not many of us I just got really tired of begging for that inclusion mm. And representation and then I realized like why am I complaining and harping on about this all the time and not doing something about it myself because this realization was it's me that's affected by it a lot of these brands and businesses like they're run by amazing well-meaning people but because they don't share those experiences and that pain of being excluded from the beauty narrative it was never really going to be a priority for them because why fix it if it's not broke right like there's a formula that works in New Zealand and in the world for beauty Mm. You know, it's very generic. It's very certain size, certain hairstyle, certain color eyes, certain skin, very airbrushed. Like it's all just so fake, but it's also just very one dimensional. I was like, just do something about it, Jesse. I had been on a a journey with, you know, being more predominantly plant-based and then I went into the cruelty-free thing and that was like opening Pandora's box and I was mortified at how naive I was about animal like testing and I was like, I want products that are really transparent, but I also want that diversity and inclusivity. I want representation. I want young girls and, and people to see themselves. And I also don't want it to be pretentious. Mm. I really hate that you can't sit with us vibe that a lot of the beauty and fashion industry has. It's really intimidating um, and elitist. I want everybody to feel like they're welcome and made to feel special and entitled to that, Self-care. Yeah, Two Birds Beauty is my baby. It's been a hell of a journey. I definitely wasn't expecting to launch it in a pandemic. <laughs> That's been an experience. That online retail space, um, e-commerce is booming, right? Like having that accessibility where you don't have to go into a brick and mortar stall is a wonderful thing to be a part of especially when there's so much happening right now it's a great space because it means that you can directly connect with your demographic with your customers I'm about to launch a campaign called Let's Redefine Beauty with a whole bunch of amazing people I didn't want to work with models that was one thing that I knew from the outset, I had a lot of people advise me, like, you need to work with models, like, make it really aspirational. I just knew for myself, I was fatigued of seeing that type of, like, perfection that everybody's striving for where it's it doesn't exist. Mm. I really wanted to see real people with real stories and that, that whole normalising diversity thing that's only really going to happen if we're not using models, we're using real people that are not one-dimensional, that actually have stories to tell and life experiences and for me to be able to elevate their voices, because I've had a few people like, oh, why don't you make yourself the face of the company when you launched? And why are you so quiet behind the scenes? And it's it's intentional. It's not about me. This is a brand that, like, I'm really proud of our first product that we've launched. It took a long time to develop and it stands alone. I don't like that whole gimmicky, like, Jessie Go by Jesse Go. You know, like... <laughs> I didn't I didn't want to do any of that kind of thing. I just think that this thing can like stand on its own two legs. And I also think New Zealand is not a place for that type of thing. That's very American. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm really excited to launch this campaign. The stories are really amazing and it's encouraging everybody to tell their own beauty stories. Mm and helping to to make people realize that beauty is more of a feeling than the concept of like such surface level stuff like beauty is so personal we're all entitled to feel beautiful we all have our own beauty stories to tell that's what's so powerful about social media now like we get to dictate and tell our own stories now people don't get to tell us how we are supposed to feel and look and act Mm, and that's such an awesome thing
1: so true. Yeah. Something I always ask is if you could go back and tell your younger self something, what would you tell her?
0: Like if I was going back to like my 11 and a half year old self when I first got here and was like just so lost, um, I would tell myself to, to really hold on to what made me different as a superpower, you know, to see it as a superpower, not something that was ugly or a weakness or something to be ashamed of, but actually it was my superpower all along. And I wish that it didn't take me decades to realize that.
1: I mean, there's so much advice you've given us throughout this chat, but what is something you would like to share with those listening who want to do amazing things and live their life like you
0: have? I am a chronic self-doubter. I've let it cripple me in the past. I've got an EP that I recorded that is not even released. It's just sitting there collecting dust. I've done so many things and not completed them and seen them through to fruition because of the self-doubt and the depression. There's nothing sadder or worse than than never trying. It's that like being afraid of failure failing is actually not as sad and scary as, as never trying, you know, thinking that everybody's watching and waiting for you to fail. Everyone's busy with their own shit. Nine times out of 10, everybody's got their own stuff going on and they're not even paying attention to you. Like you're not that important in the grand scheme of things, like for everybody else, you know, get out of your own way and just do the thing, whatever it is, like that thing that you think is an impossible dream or way too hard. Just try and say it out loud and say it to people because once you put it out there, half of the thing that like keeps spurring you on is that you're like, shame if I don't do this now because I've said it. Yeah. And I also the other thing is that like, you're never too old to reinvent yourself or start again. You know, I'm 37 years old now. It makes me so sad and gutted when I hear women say like, oh, I'm too old, I could never do that now. Like I'm done. I've And when they go like, oh, I'm 30, I'm going to be 30, it's over. When people used to say it that your 30s, everything starts just begin when you when you hit your 30s it's not a lie Mm. it really is amazing and I think a lot of it is just the fact that you get out of your own way you stop caring about all the superficial insecure things that you used to kind of care about it's really liberating and freeing when you start giving yourself permission to like yourself Mm. yeah yeah
1: it's so true yeah thank you so much for your time I've so loved chatting with you it's been awesome This episode of the Self Love Club podcast was brought to you by Designer Wardrobe. Try Designer Wardrobe Rental with thousands of amazing outfits for rent. Thank you so much for listening to the self-love club podcast make sure you hit subscribe or follow on your go-to podcast app if you're enjoying listening feel free to leave us a glowing review on apple Podcasts. share with your friends and you can follow us at self-love club podcast on instagram i'm Val grovid and all the places you'll find us in the show notes even on a budget quality is non-negotiable